0: The following sermon was delivered on August 8th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled A Plan of Redemption Part 2 on Ruth 3, 11 through 18. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You know that old English proverb... I wonder if it's true. Good things come to those who wait. And I want you to think back this past week. Was there a time this past week even when you had to wait for something? Something that was good, not something dreadful, but something good. Perhaps a meal as it was being prepared for you or a car as it was being serviced or maybe for time with your dad. Or your mom, or your husband, or your wife, or your son, or your daughter, or a friend, either as you were traveling to or from your home and, and where you were going to meet them, or as you were waiting for dad to get home from work, or whatever. You know, we are forced to wait for all sorts of good things in this life. But what about the waiting itself? Is the waiting a good thing? Do you like to wait for things? I don't. <laughs> And I suspect that many of you often grow impatient as well and have to struggle with that. Well, in our passage this morning, the narrative moves forward for us to a period of waiting. It's going rather slowly through this night on the threshing floor, but then it seems to pick up as action takes place, and then, boom, it stops right at the very end of chapter 3 with this command from Naomi to wait. chapter ends on a bit of a cliffhanger here. But Naomi, in telling Ruth to wait, is not so much telling her to calm down in a pejorative way, but is assuring Ruth that Boaz will not rest. He will not wait until he has secured redemption for their little family. In the meantime, however, Ruth and Naomi must, in fact, wait. They must wait for this good thing. But how difficult this would be. Consider, consider this. Consider what they've been through in the book of Ruth so far. In chapter 1... Elimelech leads Naomi out of Bethlehem out of the house of bread into the fields or pasture lands of Moab and with their two sons and then he dies. Naomi's bereft of her husband, but the sons they marry Moabite women, they don't have any children and then those two men die 10 years later. And so Naomi has lost a husband, both of her sons, and she's left with two widow women in her care. And then in chapter 2, after having returned to Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi, leaving the other uh, widowed daughter-in-law behind in Moab because she chose not to come with them to Bethlehem, but Ruth and Naomi find favor with Boaz, who welcomed Ruth into his fields to gather grain for her mother-in-law and for herself. The name, though, The name of the family is still in jeopardy by the end of chapter 2. The family name still has no prospects of being continued. Elimelech's name in particular. He whose name means the Lord is king or my Lord is king. It's in danger. Or my God is king, I should say. But earlier in this chapter, in chapter 3, Naomi hatches a plan of redemption. We looked at that last week. And Ruth faithfully follows it through down to every jot and tittle. And that brings us to our passage today in verse 11. Here at the climactic point of the narrative, Boaz reveals a startling detail that will force Ruth and Naomi to an anxious standstill. For now they must wait Ruth, who again and again has proven herself to be an industrious woman of action, always doing that which she's told to do, and even taking initiative to care for her family, must stop and wait. This text shows us something of the nature of the believer's wait for redemption, and I want to show that to you this morning. This text shows us that Christian waiting is not to be anxious or nervous or even uncertain. Rather... All those who trust in Christ for new life can rest peacefully assured of his promised redemption. All those who trust in Christ for new life can rest peacefully assured of his promised redemption. In verses 11 through the first half of 14, the text records the promise of redemption given by Boaz to Ruth. And then in the second half of 14 and in verse 15, we have the picture of new life that, again, Boaz gives to Ruth. And in in verses 16 through 18, we see the peace of assurance. The peace of assurance in light of what Boaz is going to do for Ruth. So first, looking at verses 11 through 14, we'll see the promise of redemption. Look at those verses with me. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. We see here in these verses how Boaz addresses Ruth's fear with tenderness. And how he agrees to her request, how he affirms her good reputation, all in delivering a promise in verses 11 to 12. And then we see the content of the promise, what exactly he's going to do for her in uh, the second half of 12 into the first half of 14. And he gives a new detail, a promise to secure redemption there, as well as uh, a proof of his intent to redeem her. So first, looking at the delivery of the promise, notice how he begins here. He says, now, my daughter, do not fear. He addresses her fear that she has, that he knows she has, that she very reasonably has. But he addresses it with much tenderness. He says, my daughter. And in doing this, he fulfills the function of a redeemer already in these first few simple words. Because a redeemer, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 41, is supposed to offer security and hope that is comfort and strength to those who are vulnerable and without hope in the world. Isaiah 41 verses 13 and 14, God speaks and says, For I am the Lord your God, using his covenant name, I am Jehovah, Yahweh, your God, who upholds your right hand. Who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Boaz reflects God as Redeemer. Even now, before he formally knows whether or not he will be the one to actually prosecute or or perform the redemption that Ruth is asking him to perform in the verses previous to this. And then we see him actually agree to her request. He not only addresses her fear, but the way he does so is by agreeing. He says, I will do for you whatever you ask, all that you say. Though Ruth came to Boaz as a maid. Remember, she introduces herself as Ruth, your maid, And Naomi told her earlier in the chapter to to receive instructions from Boaz. Remember, Naomi says, he will tell you what to do, essentially. He here turns the tables. And he says he's going to do for her everything that she asks. He will follow her directions. He agrees to her request. He will ensure that she is brought into the covenant community. Because that's what the redemption will be. In verse 9, she asked that he would spread his covering over her. And drawing once more from the prophets, Ezekiel in chapter 16, verse 8, uses, uses that image of God spreading his skirt over uh, the people of Israel, of covering their nakedness. As a picture of bringing them into covenant. He says, I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. See, that's what redemption actually accomplishes. And Boaz understands that and Ruth understands it. That's why she drew on that image. And here, what she's asked for, he promises to do. To bring her into the covenant community. To ensure that she, in fact, would be redeemed out of her condition. Brought into relationship with God and made safe. And then he moves forward and explains why. By affirming her good character. Look at verse 11. The end of verse 11. One of the most famous verses in this book. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. The construction here is just like the construction describing Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1 a man of great wealth. It's a man of valor, a mighty man of strength. And here, a woman of excellence, literally, a woman of valor, a woman of strength, a woman of virtue, a woman of excellence. Here, Boaz declares that Ruth is this woman. Of excellence, virtue, or valor. She matches him. By referencing his townspeople, all the people, all my people in the city, literally those who sit or pass by and through the gate of the city, he's affirming her good reputation in the town and he's expanding the setting of this little encounter, not a romantic. or rendezvous on a threshing floor, but something of great public and social importance in Bethlehem. He expands that context out of the threshing floor into the whole city, as it were, into the whole town. Everyone knows what Ruth is like. Everyone knows she's a woman of excellence. But what's really important at this point is not so much what the people think, but how Boaz will act on the fact that Ruth is an excellent woman. Proverbs 12.4 says a woman of excellence, it's the same exact phrase, a woman of excellence is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31.10, a woman of excellence, who can find for her worth is far above jewels. This foreign woman who came out of Moab to Bethlehem with nothing as a needy beggar And now she's recognized as the kind of woman any Bethlehemite man should want to marry. She is an excellent woman, a woman of excellence. How has she done this? Not by hobnobbing with the rich and the powerful, not by social graces or even beauty or poise. None of that is mentioned of her. What we're told about her up to this point, what we know that Boaz knows that makes her a woman of excellence is the demonstration of her love and loyalty for Naomi and for Naomi's family. And so Boaz, who referenced her as a girl in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 5, and then as my daughter at a couple of points, now puts upon her this title, woman of excellence, in chapter 3, verse 11. There's a reason this verse is one of the most famous of the book. It is deeply significant as we see the transformation, perhaps not so much of Ruth's character as of her status, of what's happening to her. Now this should bring to mind our own change of status when we come to God. We come to him with nothing to offer, but when we come in faith, boldly approaching the Father through the righteousness of Christ the Son, we will be received as a righteous man. And as in James 5.16, our prayers can accomplish much. He will hear our prayers and our requests, and he will answer them insofar as they are in the name and according to the will of Jesus Christ his Son. That's pictured for us here with Ruth. And those who would enter into covenant with God, who would have new life by his spirit, must come boldly on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And he will reward you when you diligently seek after him thereby. So we see the delivery of the promise is very significant here in verses 11 and 12, but then the content of the promise is fleshed out, and we see things get a little complicated. First, Boaz gives a new detail at the end of verse 12. He says, however, there is a relative closer than I. There is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. What's going on? What is going on with Boaz? Doesn't he want to marry Ruth? He's just said she's a woman of excellence. She's eminently marriageable. But now he says, but someone else has first claim here. Remember, this isn't a story of romantic love. This isn't a story of self-promotion, of, of individuals trying to get the best that they can get on their own. That's the story of judges. But this is the corrective to that. This is the story of Ruth. This is a story of covenant redemption according to God's law. Boaz is thinking first of the family's interest before either his own or actually before Ruth's as well. He will secure Ruth's redemption then for the sake of the family according to God's law for the sake of God's glory. He's a noble and pious man through and through. And he gives this promise to secure their redemption in verse 13. Remain this night, literally lodge here this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. Regardless, he's promising to secure Ruth's redemption. The word redeem, it occurs over and over again. And the word itself is Uh, smashed up with. It's compounded. It's attached to the personal pronoun you, uh, the feminine you for Ruth. And so the focus is on redeeming Ruth, redeeming Ruth, redeeming Ruth. And we've been talking a lot about redemption in this series through the book of Ruth. Like I said earlier, I named this series, The Search for a Redeemer. And I was thinking this week that last week, when I was putting forward Naomi's plan of redemption, I failed to actually define what I meant by redemption. And there might be some here who don't know exactly what that means, because it's kind of a, an insider speak. It's a, it's a Christian word that we use a lot, but maybe don't reflect on as much as we should. So what does redemption? mean? Well, if you read B.B. Warfield, and I think he's right about this, the core idea in redemption is the idea of buying something, of making a purchase. Uh, In the early church in particular, the word ransom would be used a bit more frequently, and then redemption really comes into our use as it is during the Reformation era, but appropriately so. And so what Boaz is doing here is he's promising to make a purchase to incur a cost to himself if the one who's closer in the order of redeeming Ruth isn't willing to bear that cost, isn't willing to make that purchase. That's very important to understand about the dynamic here. Boaz is promising here to secure someone, either this other relative or himself, who is willing to pay a cost to do for Ruth what she has asked. However, in Boaz's case, he's promising both to marry Ruth and to redeem her. Two distinct but intertwined activities. Um, They're distinct, but they're inextricably related in this case. We'll flesh that out more when we look at chapter 4. And so that's what Boaz promises to do. That's the content of his promise. But then he gives proof of his intent to redeem Ruth, or at least to secure her redemption. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, um, lie down uh, until morning. He directs her to lie down, just as he's already instructed her to lodge there at the threshing floor, so that she wouldn't be in danger in the night. He doesn't send her away right away. Uh, She's to stay there until the morning. And so she lay down at his feet until morning, and so she obeyed him. Why is this detail important to us? Well, I believe that it does give us proof that Boaz intends to fulfill all that he's promised to do here. But there's a contrast between night and day that the narrator makes a big point of here in the text. And this contrast between night and day of the danger of the night and then, you know, the safety that comes with morning light. That's something that crops up again and again in the Old Testament. It's imagery that frequently refers, not to literal night and day, but to exile from God's presence and then return into God's presence. Of exile and return, or to put it in another way, slavery in Egypt and then freedom and liberty and redemption in the promised land. When morning comes, then redemption is at hand. And what of us? My friends, we dwell in a cosmos under a curse. God has cursed his creation as a result of Adam's sin. Yes, this is true. And there is thick darkness pressing in around us and swirling about with great terror frequently on every side. And there's also thick darkness cropping up and bubbling up within us to extinguish the light. But, but morning is coming. In fact, dawn has broken. And Christ's victory over sin and death as proved in the resurrection. And we labor here now to instruct our children to proclaim his excellencies, to set forth before men the gospel of salvation, full and free in Jesus Christ, that we will bask in the glory of eternal daylight forevermore. Now, I think all of that is there in the simple command to rest through the night, to lie down until the morning. Now, of course, Ruth is quick to do just as Boaz directed her to do in verse 14a, and that then serves as something of a transition into the second part of our passage, the picture of new life. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. She lay down at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another, literally before a man could recognize another or his comrade or friend, and he said... Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said then to her, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city, as our text says, but I'm going to explain. I think it would be more appropriate to read it as, then he went into the city. And um, that that is a, a footnote there in the New American Standard Bible. And I'll explain that when we get to it. So anyway, the point here, though, in verses 14 and 15 is that we're given a picture of new life. A picture here with this giving of barley from Boaz to Ruth after Ruth arises in his care. She arises in Boaz's care. She gets up uh, before uh, morning light really uh, gets to the point where one can recognize another. And then here at the end of verse 14 when he says let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor the hebrew makes it clear he's speaking to another man he's using uh, the masculine imperative let it not be known he's not speaking to ruth some commentators think that he's speaking to ruth but i think it's clear he's speaking to a man but there's no one else there at the threshing floor so who's who is he talking to he's talking to himself we're given a picture of his thought a record of what he's thinking let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor he has been thinking perhaps all night maybe he didn't go back to sleep thinking through what is he going to do to make sure she gets back safely without any damage to her reputation without any assault along the road thinking okay what am i going to do for that and then thinking through what am I going to do tomorrow to secure her redemption? How am I going to make sure I see the particular man that he had in mind who's a nearer kinsman? And, and how am I going to, to basically negotiate with him, argue with him, and secure Ruth's redemption uh, in a way that's most advantageous to Ruth and perhaps even to Naomi? And so we're given here an idea of the of the real setting that... She's waking up in safety, in Boaz's care and concern for her. And then he gives her, in verse 15, a token of life. He said, give me the cloak or the garment, the shawl, the the outer uh, garment that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six barleys or six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city or he went into the city this gift of barley, some people think it's six little barley stalks. And so it's a symbolic gift. Other people think that he's loading her up with three big scoop or six big scoops of barley. And so she'd be waddling out of there with a big lump in front of her. Either way, I think that this is a picture of what's going to happen in chapter four. That she's going to bear a son to him that she will bear offspring, and this offspring will be a great blessing. And the language is so interesting, as, as we anticipate the birth of Obed at the end of the story. We're told that Boaz lays the barley into her garment upon her. And then later on, we're told that Obed is laid upon Naomi. It's the same word. And so the narrator here who's telling the story, who put this together, is masterfully foreshadowing that which is coming, this great promise of new life. It's a token of life Boaz gives, and that token is then shown forth in Obed's birth later on. And then at the end of verse 15, as I said, I believe it's describing Boaz going into town, not Ruth. Then he went into the city. I believe that's more likely not, because, not just because I prefer what's called the Masoretic text, though I generally do prefer that text, but also if, if we don't have that detail, then we don't really have a transition from the threshing floor to the city for Boaz. And we kind of need that. And it also shows us that he is taking the initiative and in getting right to it. But regardless... Whatever your textual preference is, whether you think it said he went or she went, it doesn't really affect the ultimate meaning of the text. There's no way of understanding it as them going together. They go separately to their various places, Ruth to Naomi's house, Boaz to the city. The point is, though, that Boaz is prompt in pursuing a solution for Ruth's plight. Before the sun even... uh, crests over the horizon, he's going off on his errand to do what he promised to do. And then in verses 16 to 18, having seen this picture of new life, uh, having seen Boaz's commitment to Ruth, his covenant loyalty now, as he's on the move to take action, and having seen before that um, the, the promise of redemption that he gave, we now are given a picture of the peace of assurance in verses 16 to 18. Look at it with me. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? Or literally, Who are you, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, literally sit still, my daughter till you know how the matter turns out or the matter falls out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. We're given here a picture of the peace of assurance, as I said. Again, put yourself into Ruth's position. She hurries home to her mother-in-law. She's done everything that she's been told to do, but now she's coming back with a new piece of information unbeknown- unknown to her before, That there might not, Boaz might not be the one to redeem her. So now, this unknown guy that she doesn't know about might be the one to redeem her. She's nervous. There's nothing more for her to do. She just has to wait. So perhaps she gets home, she answers Naomi's question, and then paces back and forth nervously. And Naomi says, Wait, sit down, for he will not rest until he has settled the matter. Before he has settled it, even this day today. A couple interesting details in the exchange here in Naomi's living room. First, this question, how did it go, my daughter? Interesting, the New American Standard uses that construction because that's a bit of a of a pressing of what's actually said there, but it's difficult in the Hebrew. It probably says, Who are you, my daughter? And the only other place where something like that is said is when Isaac addresses Jacob, when Jacob comes in, he says, who are you, my son? Because his eyes were dim and he couldn't tell who he was, if he was uh, Jacob or Esau. So perhaps Naomi is, can tell that it's a woman, but can't particularly tell who exactly it is. And so addresses her as an older woman to a younger woman. Who are you, my daughter? I can't really tell. That, that would be the simplest, kind of easiest, literal reading. And then... We could reasonably also think that she's asking more of an existential question, uh, a deeper question. Who are you? What have you become? Are you coming to me as Ruth, my daughter-in-law, or are you coming to me as Ruth, wife of Boaz? What has happened in the night? And that's how I think the, um, the New American Standard is hinting at and translating it here, how did it go, my daughter, that Naomi is seeking for a report on what has happened. Whatever her question is, Exactly asking. uh, Ruth gives her a report on what the man had done for her the night before. And then she says, these six measures of barley he gave to me. And before we weren't really sure why, but now we're told why he did that. Either because he said this to her and wasn't recorded before, or perhaps um, there was some other hint of why exactly he gave her this barley. But it's very interesting For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. How did Naomi return to Bethlehem? As Mara, as the bitter one, as empty. And now Ruth comes to her. And consider all the food they've been getting this whole harvest. But in this gesture of a little bit or a lot of bit of barley, Naomi is no longer empty. She is even now filled And that theme of Naomi's filling here is going to get fleshed out in the next chapter as we see how exactly the family will be redeemed. And then also the significance of Obed being laid upon Naomi rather than, say, Ruth. But the main thrust of this is one that's deeply instructive to us as believers who are waiting on the Lord, waiting for his coming again, waiting through trials, waiting for a good thing. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls out or turns out, for the man will not rest until he's settled it today. All those who come to Christ in faith are to receive him as Savior. That's very popular in American evangelicalism. Have you received Jesus Christ into your heart? But what is not quite as frequently mentioned is that in and by faith, we are to rest upon him alone for salvation. That we rest upon him. Does that mean that we're slothful in good works? No, by no means. But it means that when we come to Christ, we receive him as Savior and Lord, and we rest upon him as Savior and Lord. Our spiritual anxiety should fall off as we cast ourselves, throw ourselves into his care. The Puritans used to put it, and Dr. Piper puts it like this a lot, and I really appreciate the image rolling yourself upon the Lord Jesus. And it's a picture of when you get home after a hard day's work, you cross the threshold into your house, and your couch is there, or perhaps you go into your bedroom, and you just throw yourself onto the couch or the bed, and you rest. I got home yesterday driving home from Cape Canaveral in Florida. It's like a a seven-and-a-half or eight-hour drive or whatever it was with stops and i just wanted to throw myself on the couch but there's a lot of people who live in my house so someone was sitting on the couch so i threw myself down on the beanbag chair instead that was almost as good and that's the picture that i'm putting before you now is when you come to the lord jesus christ rest upon him it's a very comfortable couch so to speak he's good he's tender he's loving and he's at work he's at work on our behalf We do all that we can. We're called to work and to labor, yes. But we're also called to rest, to enter into his rest. Are you resting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? When we come to the table, are we coming on our own merits? Are we coming because of the effectiveness of our own efforts to please God? No, we're coming for rest. To grow in grace and to be assured of his love for us as the elements are are displayed before us. His body and his blood and the bread and the wine broken and poured out for us. That we would no longer live lives of anxious worry and frenetic activity and, and nervousness. But rather that we would rest upon him alone. If you're lacking in that rest, sensed as well as given. Then pray, oh Lord Give me a fuller sense, a deeper realization, a truer sense, one that complies with reality of what it is you've done, of the rest that you've won for me. And you know, God's at work. That even as we pass through this dark night of this world, yet he is working and, and arranging things by his providence, day in and day out, hour by hour, for our good and his glory. And so even as we go about our work, we can do so restfully, knowing that he will will bring success to all of our weak and measly little efforts to advance the kingdom. It's difficult to wait, isn't it? Even to wait for a good thing. Sometimes we wait in dread for something that we expect to be bad. But when we're waiting for something good that we can be sure of, that will be delivered to us, we can wait restfully. We can wait restfully. And this text shows us that all those then who trust in Christ for new life can rest peacefully assured of his promised redemption. Naomi and Ruth here at the end of this story are to trust Boaz for the continuation of the family name, for new life After the death of Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilion. And in that waiting for a good thing from Boaz, who promises to secure redemption for them, they can do though with peaceful assurance of his promised redemption. We've seen the delivery of the promise in Boaz's words, how he addresses and, and delivers how he delivers this promise and then also what exactly it entails. We've seen as well the, um, the content of the promise and also a picture of new life flowing out of that promise. But then I think most beautifully to us, the peace of assurance, these, these gentle words, these comforting words of Naomi to her daughter. And may they be words on our minds, even as we come to the table, but certainly as we go through this coming week and coming months. Sit still, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.